do. It is such a pleasure, a definite joy to be with you this morning, as I've been with you at other times. And we're going to be looking at a place that is very different from Southern California. We're going to be looking at Nepal. I have been there 20 years, and um, I would have to, without any reservation, say that the progress that we're seeing in these last six, seven years has been greater than the, all the progress in the years before. And I don't think I've turned my mic on. Okay. Is that a little bit better? Okay. I won't go back and repeat, but um, just a little bit familiarization, then we'll go into some things that, uh, you know, from, from the Bible itself. Nepal <clears throat> is a country the size of Nepal. You can put four Nepals in California, and there's a population of 30 million people. Nepal is most noted, its claim to fame is Mount Everest. There are eight of the 10 tallest mountains in the world are either all in Nepal or on the border between Nepal and where it says China, that should actually be Tibet. And then you see where India is. On the southern border, you can go and you can see jungle area with Bengal tigers and rhinoceros. But when you think about Nepal, the main thing you have to think about is poverty. A poverty that is so far reaching, touching almost every person, it touches them from the time that they are born. This young man was sold into servitude by his parents. And his parents would get the money and the father was drinking with the money while he was working. He has been taken out of this position. Today he is married and he is uh, 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 having a job and he is independent. But the, it goes all the way to grave, cradle to grave, poverty. But you see it with families. You see families that are collecting trash so that they can sell parts of it to make living, but they are also taking the food. They're using this food for their daily meals. After the earthquake that happened in April of 2015, we as a church sent uh, groups of men out to three different inaccessible areas. This will just give you an idea, a little taste of it. You can see them going up a mountain road. Now, there are no roads into these villages anytime. So they're going up the steep trails. They have, were born there and lived there. Here's what happens with the rock slides, climbing over the rock slides. They go on still further, and might have missed one. There was a slide, once a rock slide, it shows them at a 17,000 foot pass, snow covered, before they drop down into the valley. In this valley, there are six communities, six villages. And here you see two pictures of the earthquake destruction. I want you to think about poverty these are people that had almost nothing, and then they lost that. This is the devastation, this is the wreckage, and this is the effect that it has upon their lives. 
You can see the rocks, you can see everything fallen down, but you need to see there are people living there. These are the people, and there are congregations in each of the, in five out of these six villages have congregations of the church. Here you see the congregation, the people, because their homes are destroyed, gathering together in little tarps, lean-tos for weather protection. The monsoon season is coming with the rains. I know that my sister used to have her girlfriends over for uh, slumber parties. This is not the slumber party like my sister would have for her friends. This is out of necessity. This is just some place to lay down, be out of the cold, and to be able to lay your head. This again is, I'm sorry, I backed up. This is a picture that was taken in 1998, the first time I went up into this hill country. We went as far as the road could take you, and then we walked each day to new villages. This is a Church of Christ congregation gathering together for worship. They have no building. This is a building that they have today. This building would not have been possible if it were not for you, for the contributions and the, the donations that have been coming from churches here in Mission Viejo and others, that have been reaching out to the people up in these areas. In 2010, under the sponsorship of Bear Valley School of uh, Bible Institute in Denver, we opened a school of preaching. This is the building. We're renting this building, and we started and entered our first class of students in January 2010. It's a two-year program. They study every book in the Bible. They will also uh, study subjects such as Christian evidences, proof and foundation for Christian, uh, for that the Bible is the word of God. They'll be studying uh, different religious topics, denominational uh, teachings, and Christian Bible teachings on various topics. So we have a, co a complete program of these students for two years of, of their education. This is actually the classroom and the two signs that you see, what is truth? That is something that we're always con concentrating on, and victory in Jesus. This is not actually a class of students. This is a youth class. These youth would gather there once every month to have a youth class at the school. There was another picture there of another youth class because, and um, uh, I'll just handle this now. Every year, we started to have a youth camp in the month of October. And we would bring people in, youth, young people, from all over Nepal. It is actually extends into the tea plantations that are across the eastern border of Nepal into, into India. The first year, we had 25 people, about in that number, young people come. Six years later, they finished that class two weeks ago while I was here in the United States, we had 130. We could not have it inside. We had to put a tent out over the backyard. And we had 130. We're providing transportation. You are providing transportation, meals, and it's pretty crowded lodging, but they come together and they have fun all sleeping together. And uh, the youth meeting that they have there is, is really tremendous. Um, 
There were seven baptisms at, at the end of this youth meeting, and they are so excited about coming back. We're hearing stories from their parents that they come from this youth meeting, and they come back, and they, we send them back even with Bible story books, with pictures, and they start having Saturday classes for the young people, for the kids in their villages, teaching them about Daniel and the lion's den, David and Goliath. They are going back to their congregations and they are taking the message with them. We started a women's teaching women's program. This is a congregation just outside of Kathmandu, in the hills surrounding Kathmandu. And we have, in this, we have three ladies from Kathmandu, and they are, this is a, the ladies that are in this village, and you have helped build a church there. And they meet every Sunday. But we have them doing ladies' Bible classes, encouraging them to do ladies' Bible classes twice a month or, or every Saturday. Here is an example of when we have, when we go out on campaigns. This is Gajendra in the red shirt. Gajendra is um, absolutely agreed upon. Gajendra is the only Nepali Christian that could be doing his job as the director of the school. God put Gajendra in Nepal at this time for this position. And from the slide you saw before, the lady standing to your far left with the blue one is Sunita. She is the main teacher. To have Sunita there leading the ladies, Gajendra with the Bible school, have the things going on with the students on, that are on top going out into the villages. We will have lecture ships where we bring them in. We will go out on campaigns. All of these outreaches are making tremendous progress within, the, within Nepal. One of the campaigns, this was from a couple of years ago, this is the church congregation, where now they have a graduate from our preaching school as a minister, and this is how the church has grown, and we have, with your help, provided a building for them, which you'll see, but this is in one village, and the villages are where the congregations are growing the most rapidly. Here you have Sunita, in the morning, we would have one of the Christian men, including our students, giving lessons to everybody combined. In the afternoon, Sunita is teaching the ladies, and you can see I am giving a lesson with a translator to the men. And we have baptisms. This is a beautiful baptistry. And you see the youth that are, that are involved and in, in watching here. This is a Bible study of the youth in my home, in my apartment. And we have this. Remember, every, once every uh, month we have one at the school. Once a month we have a, a Bible study in my home, in my apartment. Going back to that congregation that you saw that was standing outside in 1998, this is now their building. Every Tuesday night, their young people have not only a devotional, it is connected with a Bible study before they come to the devotional. They will say, we're going to read the book of Romans, or we're going to read the book of Isaiah. 
and they will study it individually. They will come together on Tuesday night, have a devotional, and they will discuss what they have learned. This is what is happening even not just when you go there, but this is what is left behind and what is happening in the churches. Now, as you saw these pictures, even the slumber party, you didn't see a lot that reminded you of Southern California. After 20 years, every time I come back to the United States, I have culture shock. And next week, when I go back to Nepal, I will have culture shock. And if I was talking yesterday, you had that air show that some of you could see that with the uh, with Blue Angels or somebody that uh, we were talking, what if Henry Ford came back and could see the freeway traffic? What if the Wright brothers could come back and see that air show or, or go right on an airplane? Think about the, how out of place they would feel. Well, if a Nepali comes to Southern California, they're not going to be, know what to do. If you went to Nepal, you would see the differences. But you have to see the similarity. And you have to touch and have the similarity touch you before you can do any good in these communities. The differences are obvious. They will not change. But when you get past the differences and see the similarities, that's when you can begin to do some good. When you see people with problems, but you see souls that are going to spend somewhere in eternity. And to kind of exemplify that, we're going to turn to another thing. This is even going back further than the Wright brothers. Open your Bibles to Isaiah. Isaiah was written 2,700 years ago. Now that's a big change. We certainly couldn't have anything in common. If you went back to their time, you'd be overwhelmed if somebody from there could come to here. But what do we have in common? Well, we have a common problem. What is that problem? In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Listen, O heavens, and hear, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. Uh, verse 3, An ox knows its owner and a donkey its master manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. My people. We are God's people. Israel was God's people. And yet here it says, they do not know, they do not understand. Hosea 4, 6 says, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. He goes on to say that they have rejected knowledge, I will reject them. They have forgotten the law, I will forget them. This is a message to us. What is our Bible knowledge? What is our knowledge of God? Let's look at more of the problem. Turn to chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Woe. Woe is a warning. Warn carries the warning that will also lead to punishment, the wrath of God. Woe to those who call good evil and, and uh, evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, 
Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. This is basically talking about the conflict of spirit and flesh. Lightness and dark, darkness, evil and good. It's talking about, again, my people. It's talking about what is false and what is truth, God's truth. And it talks about wisdom, being wise in their own eyes. James talks in chapter 3 talks about earthly wisdom and calls it demonic wisdom. He talks about the wisdom that comes from above, the wisdom that will lead to salvation. This is a problem that they had. You know if that problem exists today. Turn to chapter 30, please, and verse 1. Begins again with woe, my people, my children. Verse 1. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who excel, who execute a plan but not mine, and make an alliance but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin. People make plans, people make partnerships, friendships. They have their priorities. But God says, these are not mine. They are your, your own. And when you have self in place of God, you're going to have sin. One last warning, turn to chapter 30, verse 9. For this is the rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. Do not listen, do not obey. People and sons. The problem that they had is a problem that we have in Nepal. It's a problem that I think you can relate to, identify with here in Mission Viejo and in the surrounding area. It is a problem of people forever. And yet Isaiah gives the answer. Let's go back to chapter 1. When Isaiah gives the answer in chapter 1, verse 10, hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom, give an ear to instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah are used figuratively to say people who are involved in sin. What do you need to do? What is the answer? Hear the word of the Lord. Give ear to the instruction of our God. He goes on in chapter 16 through 20, saying that this is a matter of choice. It's not something that you are compelled to do, you have to make a decision. And this choice is going to have an effect upon where we spend eternity. Chapter, uh, verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil from your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. You want a good definition of repent? Isaiah just gave it to you. This is not a, says that you have to make a choice, that choice is to repent, change your ways. Change your priorities, change your plans, change your friendships. That was the problem. Here is the answer. Uh, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. In verse 18, it's talking about Christ. This is repeated in the book of Revelation. And so we see that the answer is Jesus Christ, even predicted in prophecy. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Forgiveness of sins, only through Christ. His blood 
cleanses the sins of those from the past. It will cleanse our sins today. As long as there is a world, that will be the answer to the sin problem. We talk about if is the biggest little word in the English language. And in verse 20, or 19 and 20, we see the word if. This is choice. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. If you consent, if you submit, if you obey, follow the instructions of God, we will receive God's blessing. But verse 20, if you do not, if, but if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, the wrath and the punishment of God. Look at chapter 30, verse 18. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. I want you to think about the Lord with his arms wide open. God is sending, here is the problem, here is the answer, because I want you to make the choice and to come to me and be one of my children, to enter my family. And what does God do to back that up? In verse 18, he will be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is the God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. The grace, the love, the compassion, the forgiveness of God is waiting with open arms. Blessed are we, happy are we, when we long for him. I'm thinking about Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus' opening words on the, uh, what is called the Sermon on the Mount. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. We've already heard, listen, and learn. Knowledge of God's word is the key to making the right choice. That's what Jesus, that's what uh, is being said here in the book of Isaiah. And then Isaiah has a very personal time. Let's go back to chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, God is calling says, I heard a voice. He heard the voice of God. What was the message of God? God is calling. Who will I send? Who is there? Isaiah says, here am I, Lord. Send me. Well, that voice is still calling today. The problem is still there. The answer is the same. The voice calling to us is still the same loving God, Father, creator of all things, Lord and master, and it's calling to each of us individually. And individually, when Isaiah says, here am I, Lord, send me. That was the answer 2,700 years ago. That has to be the answer of each person who has once any hope of heaven. If it's in Nepal, if it's in Southern California. Rudyard Kipling Talking about East and West, Rudyard Kipling spent half of his time, life in India, half in England. He said, East is we, East, and West is West, and never the twain shall meet. We've demonstrated that in pictures. We've talked about the culture shock from one place to another. 
I can tell you things about Nepal. I know things about Nepal, but I don't understand them. Never the twain shall meet. But then he goes on and says, till earth and sky stand presently at God's great judgment seat. That's what we're talking about today. At God's great judgment seat, there's going to be a time of judgment. There's going to be a time when the people of Isaiah's time, the people from Nepal, the people from Africa, from Mission Viejo, are all going to gather at a time of judgment. And that's what the message of Isaiah is about. That's what the message of the New Testament and the church is about. The judgment seat of Christ, because this lifetime is preparing us for the next lifetime, for eternity. I was introduced as a missionary. What is a missionary? Who is a missionary? My answer is an active Christian. I am serving a mission role that you are not. But I could not be serving that mission role without you. You are serving a mission role in your prayers and your support that the people in Nepal cannot supply for themselves. This is what I frequently term long-distance fellowship. Your brothers and sisters tell me to tell you thank you until they can tell you thank you themselves at God's great judgment seat in heaven. That's what the whole message about. That's what the mission work there is about. That's what this devotional is about and your worship service here today. It's about where are we going to spend eternity. It's about that choice, repentance. Here am I, Lord. Send me, use me. Now, Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, is a very good example. Ezra determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord. Then to apply it and put it into practice in his own life, and then to teach others. There's no better definition of evangelist or missionary than that. There's no better definition of an active Christian. Study God's word, know God's word, put it into your own life, make it active, Get rid of the hypocrisy, give power and uh, meaning to the words that you speak, and then share it with others. You have your sphere of influence. Your sphere of influence and people who are in your life that you know personally, that you will be the best person to share God's word with, not the elders, not the preacher, you will be more effective in their life than anyone else on the face of the earth. Here am I, Lord, send me. That is the message that I have to keep telling myself. Every, every Christian has to keep saying, I am the Lord's servant. What am I, how am I going to, to respond to this? Let's finish by turning to 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to read verses 13 through 15. And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. This is the word of encouragement to each of us. Put away our fears. 
God told Joshua, be bold and courageous. We have that same message and the same need today. And in verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense or to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and with reverence. We need to put Christ number one in our life. The people that you see here on the opposite side of the world, it is 12 hours different time in Nepal now. The people 2,700 years ago, we need to put God first, number one priority. And we need to know the instruction of God so that we can give an answer and we look for those opportunities to give the answer. And as that is the way that the church will grow in Nepal, the church will grow in Southern California, that is the way that when we reach the judgment seat of God at the, after the end of this life, that we will receive the blessing rather than the wrath of God. A song has been chosen, it's called a song of invitation, a song of convenience. I want you to think about it as a love song because the Bible is a book, is a story of love. Think about it as a love song. Think about it as if you have any need, whatever that need might be, everyone who is singing this song is showing their love for you of wanting to help you spiritually, physically, in whatever way is possible, come and use us to share your needs so that they can be met with loving Christian uh, attention. Let us stand while we sing that, that song that has been chosen. Hark the gentle voice of Jesus.